This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Let us pray. Lord God, we are grateful this morning that you have spoken to us through your holy scriptures. Meet us here as we wrestle to understand even the difficult sayings we find in your word and help us to find hope and life in them. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Be seated. Today's lectionary reading from the letter to the Hebrews is jarring. When I first sat down with this passage in preparation for today's sermon, if I'm honest, reading it left me feeling unsettled. These verses trigger questions, concerns in my mind, and fears in my heart. Especially verses 4 through 6 on page 4 of your bulletin, which read, For it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened, and who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, since on their own they are crucifying again the Son of God and holding him up to contempt. I want to be honest about the questions that come to my mind as I hear these verses read. Who is the author talking about? Do they mean people who were really Christians, really saved? And if so, what does that mean about whether one can lose their salvation? Can I lose my salvation? Is denouncing Christ an unforgivable sin? And if so, what does that mean for my loved ones? These are the questions I have. You may have more. This passage deals with significant theological themes. Assurance of salvation, forgiveness and repentance, judgment, God's sovereignty and human responsibility, just to name a few. This is by no means an easy passage to teach or to learn. But it is well worth our time and attention this morning because I believe that Christ desires to meet us here in these hard words. And when Christ meets us, it is only and ever for our good. So our passage opens, chapter 5, verse 11. About this we have much to say. So the natural question to ask is about what? And when we back up and and locate this passage in the broader context of the letter to the Hebrews, we realize that the passage we read today is actually a pause, a break from a pretty heady discussion about priests and Christ as our high priest and this mysterious Old Testament figure named Melchizedek. So the author of Hebrews has more to say about all of that, and it is a lot. But the author pauses to acknowledge that the readers might not be ready to hear it. The author likens the readers to young children who need milk, the basics of Christianity, the ABCs of the faith, if you will, rather than solid food. This Melchizedek business that we need to get to, it's like steak, but you can't feed steak to infants, or you shouldn't. 
The author's assessment of the reader's state of immaturity also, though, has an invitation with it. Not to leave you with the basics, but come on, let's, let's grow up. Let's, let's be stretched. In chapter 6, verse 1, the author says, let us go on to perfection, which ought to be understood in the sense of maturity, of, of not staying with the basics, but moving on to what is more complex, to the meat. Because there's more to see, more to do. The author wants to pull their readers further up and further in, and ultimately to a deeper understanding of what it means to be saved, to equip the church with the hope and the encouragement that they need. So it's to that end, the author, the author lays out a solemn warning, which we cannot ignore. But neither do we need to be afraid. Because even as the author writes about the fate of those who have experienced the gospel and fallen away, there is hope attached for those who have ears to hear. In verse 9, the author says, Even though we speak in this way, beloved, we are confident of better things in your case. The author writes to the readers as beloved, which is so important. This is a word for us. We, the church, are God's beloved. It is crucial that we remember that any warnings we encounter in Scripture, we read them in the knowledge that our God loves us, that he is committed to us. He is not out to get us, but desires that we stay close to him. That his posture toward us is one always with open arms. But this foundation being laid, still, what does the author mean by verses 4 through 6? And how does it interact with or answer our questions? As we read this passage concerning those who have walked away, rejected Christ, we may be left wondering whether they were really Christians in the first place. And perhaps you've heard the phrase, once saved, always saved. The idea is that a decision to put one's faith in Christ is permanent and that it cannot be undone. Many faithful Christians hold this view. But when you encounter this passage, then they argue that the person who's being described here, having been enlightened and tasting the heavenly gift, participating in the Spirit, must have been someone whose faith was only peripheral or uncommitted. Someone who never entered fully in. Think maybe a person that comes to church and, and likes the experience of what happens here, but never really gave their life to the Lord. They really couldn't have been true Christians, the logic goes, because if they had entered in and, and put their faith in Christ, then they would still be committed to him, because once saved, always saved. They would not have fallen away. The true saints persevere. And to me, there is a lot that is compelling about this doctrine. But it's, it really does, it seems to give assurance, value, to the, to the confidence that we have as Christians that God will never forsake us. Once you're in, you're in for life. But this view seems to fall short in taking a warning in a passage like ours seriously, or the warnings that we encounter elsewhere in Scripture, even in the very words of Jesus. It seems to me that surely the author of Hebrews is describing real Christians who have walked away from the faith. The descriptions we see here of someone being enlightened and tasting the heavenly gift are likely allusions to baptism in the Eucharist. And you add in that they've shared in the spirit, tasted the goodness of the word of God. I appreciate how one commentator put it. If you were trying to describe a real Christian, how else would you do it? Right, to be baptized, to come to the table, to participate in the Holy Spirit, 
This is precisely the Christian life. It doesn't seem like an appropriate warning if the author of Hebrews is only describing someone who is merely interested in the faith or Christianity adjacent. So what does happen to these people who have believed and then walked away? Is it impossible to come back? Have they committed an unforgivable sin? Based on this one passage alone, it might seem that way. If you're like me, you have faces of people you know and love flooding your mind's eye as you hear this scripture. Friends, family, maybe your own parents or your children who once professed faith in Christ and have since walked away. Is restoration truly not possible for them? And this is why it's so important that when we approach Scripture, we, we read it in light of Scripture. What I mean is that we allow the clear things that we know about God to help us interpret the unclear things like this verse. And looking elsewhere in Scriptures, what do we know about God and how he operates? For one, we know that God alone is judge before whom we must all give an account. You and I do not know, we cannot know the state of someone's soul before God. God alone is judge. But as judge, God is full of compassion and patience in dealing with his people. He is a God who pursues his people. Continually throughout the Bible, we see this to be true. He seeks and saves the lost. He goes after the one. He himself put on human flesh and came as one of us to enter into our darkness and bring us light. That is who he is, and his character has not changed. He still has this heart to rescue and restore, to know us and make himself known. This is his heart even toward those who reject him. Arms wide open. So what does this verse mean by saying that it's impossible? We read in chapter 6, verse 6, that as these individuals have renounced their faith, they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. That sounds pretty unforgivable, pretty impossible. But impossible for who? The whole Christian story is about a God who loves and pursues the unforgivable. I think of, the, of Saul, a, a violent persecutor of Christians before God stopped him in his tracks and changed the course of his life. I think of Simon Peter, friend of Jesus, who had walked with him, seen his miracles, and in the face of a threat, denied he ever knew him. I think of Christ's very words on the cross about those who literally did crucify him. Forgive them, Father, for they do not know what they're doing. So those faces that have come to our minds, the people we love who have walked away from God, it may very well be impossible for us to restore them, to convince them to return to the faith. But what is impossible to us is not impossible to God. He has not abandoned them and his love for them has not changed. He longs for them to come back. His invitation is still open. And our loved ones, like the prodigal son who ran to the far country only to come to the end of himself, can still come home. 
can still come home to a father who has been waiting and runs out to meet them. So let this passage be a, a challenge and an encouragement to us to keep on praying for those whom we know and love who are presently walking apart from God. To not give up on bringing them before the Father in prayer because we don't know the end of their story. But what about you? What about us? We who are here this morning or watching from home, should we be worried for ourselves? Could we be in danger of losing our salvation? How do, how do I know if I am secure? And before answering, I think it's worth remembering that charge sometimes given to preachers of the dual responsibility to both comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. The Word of God does both remarkably well. It has a way of speaking right to all of us, precisely how we need it. Some of us this morning need, need to be comforted, and some of us might need a little affliction. The words of warning in Scripture are meant to discomfort us, but they do not destroy or lead to despair. On the contrary, these words, even hard words like the ones we have this morning, can be words of life and hope. I think part of the reason we may become panicked when we read scriptures like these is due to a faulty way of thinking about what salvation means, how it works. See, when I, when I think about losing my salvation, I imagine it happening almost on accident. Like if I, if I doubt or if I go too long without praying or, or I go through a spiritually dry season or make a series of bad decisions, I might wake up one morning and not have it anymore. Like when you think you know where your passport is, right? And a couple days before your trip, when you're actually trying to pull it out to be ready to bring it to the airport, and it is nowhere to be found. I want to contend that though I'm often guilty of believing it, this is a faulty portrayal of what happens when someone comes to know Christ. It's too small. It is too small to imagine that salvation is something we could hold in our hands or let slip through our pocket while we're unaware. A lot of us, I think, imagine that salvation is something like having a passport issued in your name, given to you, yours, but it's for future use. And in the meantime, it could be too easily forgotten, misplaced, or lost in a move. But that is not the picture of salvation that we are given in the scriptures, is it? Rather than a document to hold in our hands, what we see in scripture is that being saved is a state of being now. It's abiding it's your identity defined as a child of God, Christ in you and with you. Of course that has ramifications for the future, but it's not primarily about what happens then. The scripture gives us so much imagery to try to capture what happens when someone comes to faith. A new birth, marriage, adoption, being put to death and raised to life, being grafted on to a branch as a, or a vine as a branch. These are all transformative issue, images, things that happen to us here and now. And these transformations are not easily undone. Not by doubts, not by bad decisions, not by dry seasons. No, far from, from crossing his arms or turning away from us, God holds on to us in times like these. He has held on to me through some truly dark nights of the soul. I'm so grateful that he did. 
So walking away, rejecting the love of Christ is possible. But salvation can't slip out of our pocket because it's not a thing we can hold at all. So if you're listening today and you fear that this could be you, whether it's that you have doubts or you stumble or you've returned to an addiction or been unfaithful in some area of your life and you're afraid that this time you've gone too far, you are actually not the recipient of the warning this morning. The book of Hebrews actually has encouragement for you, words to strengthen you. The truth is, the letter to the Hebrews has more words like confidence, assurance, confirmation, access, promises, hope, inheritance, than any other book of the Bible. Far from making us question our individual status before God, the author wants to strengthen us, to inspire us to cling tightly to our Savior, trusting that his promises to us will not fail. Hear these words from Hebrews 6, just following our reading from today. Verses 19 through 20 read, Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. So do hear this warning, but don't hear it in despair. Your salvation does not hang in the balance. The truth is it was not offered to you based on your goodness or striving, so it does not hinge upon it now. If you're like me, your story is probably a little bit like Simon Peter's, stumbling and being lifted back up showing very little faith at times and being pulled further in, failing and returning in some growth into maturity, stumbling, running time and time again to be received into the Savior's arms. The confidence and assurance that we have as Christians is real. Christ's words are true. The one who comes to me, I will never cast out. That promise is an anchor for our souls, and it remains open to each of us here today, as well as to our loved ones who are presently estranged from God. So this passage, heavy as it is, is an invitation, an invitation to trust God and press on to maturity. So let us cling more closely to Christ. The rain of the gospel is falling on each of our hearts, May we respond faithfully and produce a harvest that is useful, not motivated by fear, but by hope. As the author of Hebrews closes this section, we want each one of you to show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope to the very end, so that you may not become sluggish, but imitators of those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. Amen.